And welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about you, your body, and your health, and how to fix things. Again, I am your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante. Welcome back. And we are excited today because we have a very special host, Dr. Yang Lee, um, a professor at the University of North Texas who specializes in PM and R and performing arts medicine. Dr. Yang, thanks so much for coming and Thank joining you us Thank you on this episode. Yeah. And we've got a really good episode today. We are talking about a quote-unquote syndrome uh, that we don't have a lot of great literature talking about the, the syndrome itself other than how it shows up and how we treat it. But we, we talk about it because it's so prevalent. And that syndrome is called upper crossed syndrome. Mm-hmm. We see it on a regular basis in all sorts of population. And ever since the advent of computers and sitting on our backsides for work, we see it more, more and more. As a matter of fact, there was a study done at a medical school um, in Lahore that uh, they looked at over 300 students and 30% of their students had upper cross syndrome symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Not surprising. So tell us about upper cross syndrome. So, um, upper cross syndrome is, was first described by a neurologist. His name is Vladimir Yanda. Mm-hmm. And uh, he eventually became a rehabilitation physician at his home country, Czech Republic. And he described it as uh, a group of muscle that is inhibited and facilitated. So in the upper limb region and the shoulder girdle region. So inhibited and facilitated at the same time. Yes, some muscles, some group of muscles that are inhibited and some muscle groups that are facilitated. Okay. Now, before I say anything about upper cross syndrome, I would like to sort of establish the fact that his initial studies of studying these muscle groups hasn't really been replicated in further studies. Mm-hmm. And so if you were to say, let's say type in upper cross syndrome at PubMed or something like that, you won't really see any tangible articles supporting it. But if you type in upper cross syndrome in Google. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different matter altogether, that, isn't it? That is a ton, there's tons and tons and tons of using blogs and articles and things like that. And we're gonna talk more about it. And so we'll leave it at that. But as physicians, I, I, I felt the need to kind of address that, you know, from a scientific perspective, it's just very hard to describe and replicate what Yanda did. However, um, the, the the descriptions of the syndrome is easy to observe mm-hmm. and it gives us a, a, a really good tool to understand what happens when, when um, we live our life in this modern society. <laughs> <laughs> when we live our lives <laughs> sitting down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Call idea, yeah. Attention to that idea. It's yeah. worth noting that syndrome specifically doesn't imply overt pathology, doesn't even imply right. cause. To be a syndrome only connotates a constellation of symptoms with no necessarily implication of what creates it underneath. And that's a good point. You know, yeah. we, we see all sorts of uh, symptoms of, of diabetes that could be part of the syndrome but are not necessarily diabetes in itself. Correct. That's right. And this falls in the category of a movement or a postural or a whatever it's going to be 
syndromes. Observable features right. in, in that are common uh, in, in regular functioning human beings, right? Um, it's not something that'll kill you. No, it won't kill you. That's but it sure. certainly creates a lot of suffering and certainly is at a minimum quite of quite an annoyance for most people who who are who are living in this in this in this era actually well and much of what we do and i like to say this when, when i have uh, students around is when we treat patients we are quite often treating their quality of life that's right we're not necessarily giving them quantity of life but we're definitely improving their experience in this life and honestly that's what we do in medicine quite often is we're trying to improve quality of life yeah absolutely should we talk a little bit more about what he talked about please yeah let's yeah. do so he um at least in the upper crust syndrome so his description of inhibited muscles are sort of what he called phasic muscles general extensors okay so phasic so muscles. phasic muscles so um, in the shoulder girdle upper limb region, they are the weak lower traps, mm -hmm. weak serratus. Um, so we're weak, talking really serratus anterior yeah, serratus versus anterior the serratus posterior. posterior. That's right. And I or in the shoulder girdle region. And when we talk about serratus anterior, there's really two portions, right? An upper and lower. Yeah. Is it more the lower that are weak or more the upper that are weak? Do we know? I would say that all the things that he talks about in all the articles that talks about upper cross syndrome, they don't really distinguish that. But, um, and then also anterior neck muscles, mm -hmm. right? The deep cervical flexors, we call them, right? So, and then this is what other, most people are really uh, annoyed by, the tight, facilitated, shortened muscles that are opposing it. Um, they're the... It, the, what what uh, Yanda called um, sort of flexor muscles, there um, and they tend to they they tend to be upper trapezius, mm -hmm. scalenes, uh, sometimes uh, even the SEM, the sternocleidomastoid, and um, pectoralis, the minor and the major. So right. he talked he talked a lot about that shortened pec in the front, shoulder, neck, and cervical musculature, weak anterior cervical muscles, and weak lower scapular stabilizers in general. That actually so sounds a lot like somebody who spent way too much time on chest day in the gym. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. We talk about that. Strict, yeah, <laughs> when someone spent all of their days doing bench press and uh, I know. Uh, chest exercises, but they don't do anything in their back. Right. They don't deadlift. They don't deadlift at all. They don't do any rows or anything like that. They get a big old pec muscles. And then, uh, and, and you know, the other image I had was someone who's sitting at their computer about 11 o'clock at night and they're uh, talking on Facebook to someone that they're really angry at and they're curl their shoulders forward and their heads leaning towards the screen or trying to read whatever right. they're trying to read you know or like our entire first year class <laughs> one month into it in medical school right yeah i call that studentitis studentitis <laughs> that, that calls to attention something very yeah very cool since we're going there the postures of this syndrome we're discussing correlate well with that what you mentioned the keyboard warrior yeah right yeah the frightened yeah, yeah. med student right mm. yeah. 
Yeah. You know, say the guy who benches is a little bit too much. But there's this consistency, this component of, you know how uh, you have a sympathetic system, you have a parasympathetic system? Mm. Mm -hmm. You have that one that's designed to like, you know, rest, digest, chill out, eat some water burger. And the other's ready to kill anything that gets in its way. Right, like where's my saber-toothed tiger? I'm gonna stab it with its teeth. <laughs> and then eat it afterwards. Which is good when it's there to stab, but what if the thing you gotta stab is a test? You can't stab a test. No, no. Well. I mean, electronic tests. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but there, there, there's something in that because... It's even harder now, I guess. They're right, right. Yeah, yeah. They're taking their tests on the computer. But you think about this is a syndrome that puts you, that locks you in that position, in that posturing, consistent with searching for the fight. Yeah. That's so interesting because every time I talk to my instrumentalist about upper crust syndrome, quote unquote, um, or anybody, students or anybody who, who need a little encouragement in healthy lifestyle changes, I give, I, I actually put up this picture. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like the, um, um, evolution of human beings. Yes, Have yes. you seen that online where there is like a, you know, human beings, oh, yeah, the yeah. cavemen, all the way out to the modern human being, the sort of sitting computer. down in the corner, like looking at his cell his phone. phone. And it's that posture that we're talking about with the head forward posture, with this kind of rolled over shoulders, tight muscles in the cervical region and tight pack and this sort of that sort of flexed synergistic sort of mm -hmm. crawled in position. I I it's really interesting because we it's went like a from standing fetal position. Standing standing fe fetal position, that's really true. We went from upright, you open. know, open posture, yeah. um, ready to be stabbing somebody <laughs> at a minute or stabbing a saber-toothed tiger. That's right. <laughs> uh, at a you know, second's notice. <laughs> we'll I know, yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's really interesting because that's kind of how we've now uh, evolved into this sort of standing fetal position. And I think the upper crust syndrome, as Yanda described it, really, really describes it well, right? One thing that I, that the things that we need to talk about more is the, the subsequent consequences of that, right? So right. we all see a lot of patients in musculoskeletal medicine, and we see this all the time. And so we have, patients with this type of upper cross features with cervical lower doses, so sort of that curvature, forward flexion. So that neck. chin is out. Yeah, the head chin is, is now leaning forward, forward. and yeah, normally yeah. our head is, is centered over top of our hips, but in this kind of patient the head is ahead of the hips. Right. Kind of hanging out. And, and which by itself creates issues because that's a lot of extra weight hanging forward. Right, so you, your body would now uh, compensate for that because um, the way your body fights gravity will change because right. of that. And then thoracic kyphosis, so it's sort of that flex forward upper back, right? It really gets enhanced, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Really it leans really forward. It really wreaks havoc, yeah. And then we have this winging of the shoulder Right, the, I, I talked about that rolling forward of the shoulder accompanied by the wing bone sort of traveling up and out, 
Which is, that's an interesting thing to me. Right. I, I, I was looking at uh, the, yeah. the effects of the upper trapezius the other mm -hmm. day, and one of the things that it does is rotates those, those shoulder blades. Right. And then there's a muscle that works against it called levator scapulae, mm -hmm. which we treat on a regular basis, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of cool because levator scapulae both antagonizes and works with the traps depending on what you're doing depending on what you're doing that's right and, and the, that yeah you know, that, that whole imbalance and interaction of uh, rolling versus lifting the, the shoulder blades right and it's just fascinated to me I think that as human beings I mean Dr. Dante you can kind of talk a little bit more about that but we really need to be able to use our hands and upper limbs right mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the functional tasks we do every day, not even grabbing things or writing things or lifting things, but even when I'm talking, my hands in front of me, my shoulders sort of in this abducted po position, right? And every single thing that we do, we need our arms to move, our upper limbs to move and, so that we can use our hands Right. It's Either a thing that to makes us human in a technical in sense. In some ways, right. yeah. The now, thumb, the hand, yeah. The manipulation. We yeah. call it manipulation for a reason. Right. When we use our hand to communicate, yeah. our hands to, as tools, our mm -hmm. hands in all sorts of different right. uh, applications. Not to, I mean, we don't want to be insensitive to people who've, you know, lost their limb and things like that. But in essence, that really allows us to function differently from other mammals. Right. And um, what's it's really what interesting? It's what allows us to open the, the jar of peanut butter, and if we can't eat peanut butter, <laughs> we're not human. Right. That's true. <laughs> but you know, if you think about that, think about the process of opening up my peanut butter jar. I am using my hands to do that, but my arm has to fight gravity. Right. And while it's doing that, my arm also has to move in space while fighting gravity, while supporting my body, my, my, my weight of my, weight of my arm and the jar. <laughs> Which sounds infinitesimal unless you really think about it. Right. How complicated it is to coordinate this. One of the things that may be really good to draw attention to is, so we have a hip joint, right? The hip joint is beautifully locked into our body. The shoulder is not so much. The shoulder is kind of like we use that golf ball and the tee thing. It's like a giant, giant, giant golf ball on a tiny, tiny, tiny tee. That thing is perched right. very precariously on the structure that is our uh, shoulder blade and so on and so forth. And it takes a lot of tension and a lot of coordination to make a bunch of muscles hold something together mm -hmm. rather than have something be locked in by a joint space. It's very important to know that because a shoulder joint and shoulder girdle actually itself is a very mobile region in our body because it has to be so functional and versatile. But also um, because of that, there's a lot of delicate relationship, tension force relationship that has been designed in our, in our shoulder girdle to allow for that function. Like we were talking about scapular motion, you were talking yes. about that, right? Yes. And so in order for me to lift up my arm, it's not just me kicking in the muscles to lift, my, lift up my humerus, my arm bone. 
In order for me to really lift it up, my wing bone needs to rotate too. Right. But my wing bone is really suspended in air by 17 different muscles along with other things, right? Which is amazing. Which is amazing to just to think I about mean, that. You think about a joint that's not really anchored it's with any not. bony no. structures. It's no. all anchored with muscle Muscles, right. It's there's nothing there. It's suspended. And you, you were talking about the function of the trapezius trapezius is a huge muscle right it is huge and what it needs to do is not only support that wing bone holding the scapula the wing bone tightly against the thoracic cage but also move it without it moving it then I don't have any arm motion therefore the complicated relationship between stabilizing function versus activating function if you think about upper trapezius and lower trapezius and middle trapezius, they all do the same thing, but in a different direction. They all turn the scapula, but it has to happen synchronously along with other muscles that are surrounding it. And what Yanda described originally is the arrangement of that delicate balance of that shoulder girdle region, right? So. I think that's, mm -mm -mm. <laughs> that's something that, that is the biggest value, at least as a clinician, even though there's no real um, scientific replication of his initial EMG studies, this observation of common postural derangements that changed our delicate synergistic balance in our shoulder girdle region is really valuable. Right, it's for empirically all of us. become useful. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, from the orthopedic literature, um, I'm going to have to double back and find a citation for this one because it was a really cool paper when it came out about a year ago. It was talking about the vast, vast, vast majority of non traumatic shoulder injuries were secondary to postural disturbances. They specifically describe the things we're saying here, they don't use the word upper cross, mm. but they talk about... Because the, it's not a syndrome. Right, right, because but there's a reason they don't use that word. Well, it's yeah. not. <laughs> but they're describing is, specifically the scapular yeah. malrotation, the right. aberration in firing sequence. Right. They're using the components of the thing we recognize as a syndrome, but instead of describing it as an overt pathology, they describe that as a biomechanical setup. One Which thing there, one reality, thing there. Which in reality what it is, it's a constellation of all of these biomechanical dysfunctions. Correct. But right. the reason I bring that up is one of the ways to figure out if something is true or not is whether or not it has predictive power. Because you can say, hey, this is a great theory, but if nothing comes of it, okay, what's the point? Versus the predictive power of this posture to predict specifically musculoskeletal pain is so useful that it has become empirically worthy, if not replicated in the rote uh, basic sciences. Right. Right. That's a common thing with a lot of what we do in this field, actually. I think so. Uh, the reason why what Yanda described was rings so true to those of us who perform osteopathic manipulative treatment is that he was himself really a big proponent of manual treatment. Sweet. Himself. 
He was on our Actually, side. I didn't know that until just now. Yeah, so he uh, he had a very good relationship with Dr. Greenman at Michigan State. I don't know really? if you guys knew that. Yeah, no um, he even, I believe that after he passed away, Dr. Greenman has written with other people, sort of memory of Vladimir Yanda. There's a paper out there describing his achievements and and things like that. Well, anyway, but he does describe, the way he described things rings true to us because he talks about it from uh, palpatory and observational findings that is so consistently visible to us in our clinical setting. And other people have described that too. So if you think about those muscle imbalances that we just talked about, that translates to not just in the shoulder region, but it's not isolated, it translates to other areas. Right. So, you know, a lot of people who have discussed upper cross syndrome, <laughs> quote and unquote. I wish people could see, see their fingers. Air I wish people could see our fingers right now, because we, we keep on doing this. They're it's making funny. good use of their scapulas. Yeah. Um, it, they also talk about the articular asymmetry that can develop from this. We already talked about the you know, cervical lordosis, exaggeration of that, and the you know, thoracic kyphosis. But you know, um, changes in the restrictions that develop in cervical thoracic junction, glenohumeral joint, because of that rolling forward, the anterior attitude of that shoulder region, the restrictions of the, where the trapezius ends, right? The mid-thoracic region. Mm -hmm. What about where it attaches to the occipital region? Right. Right. And is, what about all those cervical musculature scalenes, right? Mid-cervical region. The they join in the party. They're joining in the party. <laughs> and then these weaknesses, what he, uh, Yand, I think Yanda called it, um, what did he call it? Uh, Pseudo-weakness, pseudo I think he called it. So weak but not really weak because of a neurologic weakness. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's quite because of, he thought it was because of inhibition. Yeah, right. Go, right. go ahead. Well, I was going to say yeah. weakness means something very specific yeah. in the medical language. Right. So there's a subtle nuance between normal English and our very special bastardization of English. Right. <laughs> Weakness yeah, for us. Specialized English. Right. Isn't a matter of how much you can move. Isn't, yeah. It isn't actually, it's separate from strength in, in a sense. Weakness yeah. for us means the muscle cannot fire, which is different to comment on the capacity to move a load. So right. when we say somebody has two out of five versus three in this strength, that actually comments on the range of motion and the ability to coordinate muscle units. We say pseudo weakness to refer to something causing the muscle to act as if it has a neurologically derived inability to function. At least that's form. how he described exactly. it. Yeah. Right. Now, can we really uh, scientifically back that up? It's kind of arguable. But we know that functionally, in real life, it exhibits like that, you know. So just kind of going back to the, the effect of these syndrome that Yanda described and how it can affect the symmetry of of the joints well subject symmetry of our subjective symmetry of our joints and and possible development of uh, 
decrease in motion and restrictions, that also translates up and down outside of the shoulder girdle. And then it just kind of starts Snowballs. this <laughs> snowball effect. <laughs> it starts rolling downhill and everything goes out the window. That's right. <laughs> and so that's really, it's something that I wanted to kind of expand out. We can't not just focus on the shoulder girdle, but then the effect of the imbalance of these muscles that Yanda described can be pretty global and systemic, at least in the muscular skeletal um, region of our body. Here's a fun fact. So according to Gerald Herbison, MD, who taught me in residency, when you go from full strength, so in, in doctor words, we say five out of five strength, which defi it is defined as full range of motion against gravity, full resistance, to go and then go down, going there from going down to three out of five strength because of neurologic injury, which is defined as full range of motion against gravity, no resistance, you need to lose about 90% of your motor units. And what's really incredible about that is that at that point, you're still resisting gravity. We're still functional, upright, resisting gravity. And we only had 10% of our motor units left. Okay, so we've really been getting deep into the mechanics and anatomy of upper cross, but let's step back a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, the vocabulary and the language we're talking about so that we can make sure everyone understands where we're at. You're really putting my liberal arts training to the test now. Oh, I do it, man, every day. <laughs> All right, so. When we're in med school, collectively, when we're in medical training, most of us learn about muscles in the context of origin insertion. What does that mean? We learn about a musculature in the context of it's attached to two different points, typically. And when the muscle contracts, it brings those points together. The one that stays relatively stable, we call that the origin. The one that gets pulled close, we call that the insertion. And for the most part, it's a good anatomic way to map the structure, to map a muscle. But that doesn't really correlate well with how humans actually move. Notice, Yanda has a completely different language. He talks about tonic things, phasic things, postural things, flexors, uh, flexors, extensors. The word contraction hasn't happened yet. Likewise, the three of us here are DOs, and we're trained to use a different language altogether. We speak in the terms of somatic dysfunction. Mm, mm -hmm. Once upon a time, we called them lesions, right? But then we right. kind of evolved from there as well. And there's a really large difficulty. There's a big gap in communicating the language of muscle origin insertion, which is the standard language all of us who speak, any doctor at all, can speak. Right. There's this other language right. that the DOs speak, which is the somatic dysfunction language. Yeah, that uh, thoracic spine, the third one, T3, it's rotated right, side bend, whichever way, so on and so forth. Yeah, type one, type two. Exactly. Yeah. And there's this other language of tonic, phasic, anti-flexor, anti-extensor. And then the question becomes, why are there so many different ways to talk about musculature? 
but it's an idea about the different filters we run mm. to comment on the thing. If I'm talking about just what point connects to where, the whole anatomy thing is sufficient. But look, I can tell you that one of the multifidi in my back connect from point A to point B. That doesn't tell you nothing about what it does in life, right? That tells you where yeah, it is. It doesn't is. give a description of function. It just gives a, a description of location. Correct. At the same time, I can also say that at the level that that thing's attached to, I'm rotated a little bit to the right, side bent a little bit to the left. Technically true also, but that doesn't tell you what that muscle is doing in space. That tells you nothing about what it does in life. I and could it also truly doesn't describe the dysfunction itself. Correct. I could also just say that that anti-extensor so that anti-flexor is a little bit overworked. That kind of gets to the picture, but I can also say that that person has a, you know, is hunched over. Right. They're all different ways to paint the same thing. Why do we paint different ways? It's because ultimately the treatment is a function of which one we're focused on. If I'm only, if I'm a hammer, right, I find nails. If I'm a screwdriver, I find the answer is yeah. screws. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Screw, yeah. I find screws. Oh, I can imagine trying to hammer in a screw now. Please don't I, now screw. I'm going to have to try that at home just I mean, to see what it looks like. You could do anything once, right? <laughs> well, if, and you can do anything with a sledgehammer. Exactly. Oh, but goodness. the reason we have these languages. It's not what we do. <laughs> if you come into we our office be, and you see a sledgehammer, you know. No, you're not going to see a sledgehammer in our office. for each individual functional issue. There you go. So we really need to know which tool to use. Right. And that's why we have these it's languages, right? Yeah. I think that a lot of these interpretation of, of what's going on, let's just look at the shoulder girdle, because that, we're, we're, that's what we're doing now. Um, even though we should really be thinking about the whole body, um, is because we probably don't quite understand everything about the shoulder girdle, right? Yeah, uh, I'd say so. I think that what Yanda described in in his research and what your orthopedic um, colleagues described about, I'm thinking scapular dyskinesis, mm -hmm. I would agree with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it, it both quote unquote pathologies, let's say we'll call it pathologies, or abnormal features of these, um, these muscle groups, they all have similar features. It's just a dis very, different way of maybe different way of approaching and describing similar things that we all observe perhaps right. I think what distinguishes us a little bit is that we're able to or we at least claim to be able to put our hands on our patients and say hey we can feel the muscles that are tight here we can feel the muscles that are inhibited here Mm -hmm. We can look at the asymmetries with our hands in those thoracolumbar regions, cervical thoracic regions, occipital cervical regions, and say, hey, we feel restrictions here that are a little bit different from what normal tissues feel like. And I think because we're coming from different areas, it's sort of the same thing as whatever people say, the blind people touching. Oh, the elephant story. Elephant, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah, right? Yeah. So we're looking at this big thing. Big or a tree trunk or whatever. Right. For um, those who don't know, the elephant story is essentially you got a bunch of folks. One guy's touching the trunk. One guy's touching the leg. One, one, one guy like, touches oh. the ear. One touches the tail. Right. So this is, feels like a blanket. This feels like a mm -hmm. tree trunk. This feels like a hose. And then zoom out. They're touching an elephant. It's an right, elephant, guys. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so you it, might say that's the elephant in the room. 
Oh, God. Oh, no, not the I knew open. this was going to happen. <laughs> it, it, it's it's, it's going to happen. <laughs> you set us off board with the elephant. <laughs> I guess I did it. It's my fault. Normally me, it's okay. <laughs> now I'm going to regret saying that. <laughs> you know, as when you really look at it from the way we learned it in medical school, first year gross anatomy, origin insertion, sometimes things could look really simple and straightforward. But it's not because origins can become insertions and insertions become origins. And they all sometimes really don't change length at all in a lot of ways, right? We have a lot of muscles that really most of the time functions eccentrically, right? Lengthening right. contractions, right? So they lengthen and contract at the same time. They don't always shorten when they contract. Right. And that's quite functional. So what do we do? What do we do? We look at how people live, right? We look at how people function. We try to tie all of these observations and physical exam findings as osteopaths, right? Somatic dysfunctions included yes, along yes. with physical exam findings. And then we tie it back to where patients live, work, and play. And then try to translate as much as we can in a language that they can understand. I think that that's the best we can do. And hopefully we'll be able to study these things a little bit better as we progress further in terms of science. Right, because eventually the science tends to articulate, the science informs the empiric and vice versa. Like we wouldn't know to look for certain things unless there was evidence that something was happening, right? So the upper cross phenomenon, let's call it that now. Oh, I like Boom. it. Boom, phenomenon. Ooh, there we go, phenomenon. Oh, I like it. Well, oh. probably eventually evolve into something properly in the literature because one of the big breakthroughs, especially with 21st century neuroscience, has been all the beautiful literature regarding neuroplasticity and motor learning, mm -hmm. which straight up did not exist in Yonda's time. No. Like, no. The field didn't exist to even talk about. Yeah. But now that we know what, um, once upon a time, we thought that the brain mapped every muscle, and it was like, oh, there's a specific neuron to, flex, to fire my flexor digiti mini-me. And then we find out, yo, your brain can't see that for nothing. It sees, did I grab the thing right or not? It sees, what, the peanut butter jar I'm trying to crack open. Sorry, twist open. <laughs> well, it depends on how tight that lid is. Well, if you open it, you'll crack it open. <laughs> peanut butter is really good for gains. Yes, in <laughs> many ways. <laughs> but... That was a big breakthrough in our perception of how muscles operate because if we went from the one neuron, one muscle model into the motor pattern that organizes an orchestra of musculature, mm -hmm. that's a very different way to look at the body. And all of a sudden, because we think in terms of motor planning and orchestration, this works because I'm talking to performing arts specialists. This is kind of fun. Yes. 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 Now we have Very a language much. to convey something like a syndrome of movement, which once upon a time would have been like, ah, that's magic. It's, it's really interesting how that works. Uh, coming from a computer programming uh, lens, as you know, I've, I've talked about in the past, we have what's called APIs, which are libraries of functions that someone's already programmed. So when I write a program, I just call that API rather than telling the computer to do everything exactly. So it's, it's almost like the brain has a set of APIs right? where I can just tell my shoulder I need to do this kind of motion and the shoulder is going to do it, 
rather than saying, okay, now time to activate upper trapezius, now time to activate you the don't do scale. that. You don't, you don't have you to don't do, do that. You don't do that. Let's say if we want to lift our hand. I know, right? Thank heavens for that. And that kind of um, applies to sort of how human beings adjust and compensate too. Mm -hmm. right? Because our brains don't do that, our brains don't tell our trapezius to fire first and then fire, you know, serrata second. You know, that we don't right. do that. Or what is the classic teaching that we learn in anatomy in first year, uh, medical school, first, right? The, the supraspinatus starts a little bit and then deltoid fires. That doesn't like, really happen. No. We don't believe that. They all fire synergistically because our brain thinks that, okay, I want to grab that. Right? That's all I need to do. Sort of patients who have had tendon transfers, how do they know to fire flexors into an extensor? Because our brain just know how to coordinate that, orchestrate it. There you go. For function. But it's an awkward process, which is it kind is. of a big deal. It is an awkward process, yeah. Watch a baby learn how to move, and it's adorable and hilarious. And, and jerky. And right, it's because they have like... It's, it's just really a lot of fun. Right. In the beginning, Simple they have heel like contact flex everything. Hard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just watching them learn how to yeah. walk. <laughs> Resisting gravity. <laughs> our brain will, our neurons specifically, are pruned. Yeah. So the ones that do the job right, we get a little dopamine kick and goes, "Hey, I grabbed the peanut butter jar. Success." The muscles that were properly doing the job to make that thing happen get a little dopamine kick, get a little bit stronger. The ones that didn't fire correctly get downregulated. Sometimes they actually degenerate altogether. As far as the synapses, not the nerve body, for mm -hmm. the record, for the most part. And all of a sudden, what ends up happening is you build that API. The cool thing and the frustrating thing is that means that our job isn't to just massage out a stiff muscle. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, if we're treating this phenomenon, phenomenon, we're trying to reprogram an API. And that is way harder than saying, I'm going to put a needle in your back and make things happy. You know, it would be nice if we could just have them come in with a somatic dysfunction, treat that dysfunction, and it all disappear. That goes I mean, away. That, that would be Absolutely. that would be Wouldn't ideal, that be but that's not how things work. We wouldn't need this much schooling work. if the job was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, well, this is for true. acute issues, it's sometimes that easy. Like, yes, look, that's true. If I get true. slammed into a wall and my yeah. rib pops, I, I'm going to find you. You're going to put it back. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Right. But if the reason something my rib like pops, this, right. but if you spent 25 years looking at a computer, right. How do we reboot that? <laughs> well, you know, Very one good. thing that gotcha. we also need to kind of tie, tie it into what you've just said, Dr. Dante, is that um, way we process pain also, right? Because mm. yes. our patients come in and see us and talk to us about pain. They don't talk to us about, well, my scapula isn't moving or, you know. <laughs> if only they could talk about it. Like, now, <laughs> they uh, that don't being say said, that. Kind of they some dancers like, hey, will come in and tell us exactly will what's do going that. on. But, well, but they're dancers, not yes. persons, you know. Well, you know they'll, they'll, tell you, they'll tell you exactly what muscles out or bones out or things like that. But most like of that. us aren't dancers, unfortunately. Well, and so. um, our musicians won't be able to tell us. No, no. Yeah. And these things, these things, we have a lot more understanding of how we perceive pain, just like the way you described. It's not just, ouch, I, I had injury here and then I feel pain. There's a lot of complex relationship that, that has to be coordinated within the spinal cord itself. And then finally, processing centers in your cortex eventually at the end. And so we really need to start focusing, okay, how do we, when we talk about treatment, 
not just to think about, okay, these are the things that we need to fix. One, two, three, four, five, six, and then there you go, you're cured. We can't do that. Pull out we the really, magic wand. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we really need to understand, okay, how do we use our understanding of how our brain works and orchestrate movement and how does our brain process pain and decrease in function and then use that understanding to create ultimate treatment plan for our patients. So let's get really next level with this one. Right. Just for fun. We're going deep. Oof. So dive, dive. Right. <laughs> so because we're talking about the pain perception, I didn't know we were going to go that way today. But well, you know, I mean, oh you here, got me. Here, we are. here you go. <laughs> here we are. So one of the most ridiculous things I ever read was that somebody, uh, Yakupang Pangsep, won the Nobel Prize for finding out that you can tickle mice. That's actually a really big deal. Did the mice la laugh? The mice laughed. Okay. That's a really big deal. That's that's pretty amazing. Mm. It doesn't make sense why that's a big deal until I say the next thing. So I'm going to go on to the next thing. <laughs> yes, Keep please going. Do. Essentially, what ended up happening was Yakupang Tsep was an affective neuroscientist. That was his job. Uh, affective as an emotional mm. neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. He was uh, somebody who studied the limbic system. Back during his time period, it was uncertain what the heck tickling was. And then what ended up happening was he found out that the tickling phenomenon occurred across not just rodents, but also dogs, also cats, also humans, obviously, monkeys. He found out that it's a mammalian trait. And the question became, what the heck does that mean? He found out that um, the phenomenon, the neurology, the peripheral nervous system for tickling are identical to the fibers for pain. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. difference Absolutely. is what happens in the post-processing for mammals, exclusively mammals, we have a wiring that takes our pain circuitry into the, into the uh, limbic system and depending on what the amygdala does, that's the fear generating system to keep it really, really simple. You'll either process that as playful or threatening if the limbic system colors that pain, that stimulation from the pencil tip is what he used, the pencil tip on the rat belly, mm -hmm. as threatening, the rat perceives pain, the human perceives pain. If it's taken as a playful behavior, as in it's coming from something you trust, the rubber tip eraser is very similar to a mom rat's nose, so they take it as a mom rat's nose. Okay. They take it as non-threatening. I'm going to have to try that, that on my kids. The same exact stimulation becomes... I think your spots. children would know better. <laughs> but that's a big deal here, right? Because think it about... It is a big deal. Think about the areas You've in the human that are right on the Yes. I mean, you really hit it right on the nail right there. I mean, really understanding that fact, right? It is not pain unless your brain perceives it as something scary or dangerous or... It's not right, just essential. Not just, right. right. And even a tickling sensation can be perceived differently depending on what your brain does. Right. That's a really important fact. But it is really important to the work we are doing. Right, but I bring that up because it works mm -hmm. both ways. At the same time, let's say you lock your body into a position where you're habitually in that where the hell is my saber-toothed tiger pose. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So now you ramp up what you call the sympathetics. Mm -hmm. We touched that in the very, very beginning. The sympathetic system is the thing that your fear system uses to fight. So the fear system, your amygdala goes, hey, let's go to war. It ramps up the sympathetics. Your body goes into those positions. Exactly. Yeah. But same thing. If I lock my body in that position and just keep my shoulders hunched, my head forward, start scanning the room looking for targets, all of a sudden, yeah, my amygdala goes, oh, he's acting like there's a fight. There has to be a fight. 
all of a sudden the stimulation becomes what could have been playful, what could have been benign, is amped up, it's retuned into pain perception. So how do we, how do we turn this off? This activated sympathetic system, this curled up fetal position that's cracked. The standing combative fetal position? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's going to be a new martial art. Standing <laughs> combat position. That, that, that comes from, that's, that's from Mortal Kombat, isn't it? Well, no, there's actually a defense system designed around that. It's uh, spear tactics, I believe. Okay. Where you use the gross motor sympathetic thing, because everybody's going to, what, tuck their head, hunch their shoulders, raise their arms. Yeah, you want to keep that spear as far away from your midsection as possible. Basically. So instead of going into like this really refined, delicate movement, you know your sympathetic is going to fire. You know you're going to go into that chronic flexure fetal thing. So instead of doing that spastically, you train that so that you default into like your posturing. Very interesting. So for a lot of law enforcement guys, they learn that as they do their fear thing, they'll clear and draw as they freak out, which means they're battle ready as a reflex. Huh. Which can you go. Have you guys heard about reflex exercise? I think I might be digressing here. <laughs> not really, though, because um, that's hitting the same. <coughs> have you heard about this? I've not heard of reflex exercise. So um, it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not, uh, and it's a meditative practice, as simple as it can be, right? It's it's more than that, and but I, this is how I interpret it because the whole thing could be very hippity dippity if you. You oh, know, you're into, that. and we're, we're a bit yeah, uh, hippity dippity, but um, the some uh, what I took from that, what I really like about it is the opposite of what Dr. Dante described. What Dante just described is, is this reflex combat posture. You do reflex opposite of that. Oh, so, so you'd be an anti-reflex. Yeah. So when you are ready to meditate or go into your sort of um, resting. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness, mindfulness state. stay, you would put two feet on the ground sitting. You're sitting on your sit bones, a skill tuberosity, right? And you open up your arms, right? And you just kind of expose your chest. Become vulnerable. <laughs> and then you That's turn the your point. neck and expose yes. your carotids. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, come, take a bite out of my That's neck, right. Mr. Sabertooth Cat. <laughs> you that, you right? relax your jaw. And then you sort of smile, right? You yeah. smile and you, you just you, breathe. Tickled right there. <laughs> That's right. So it's called a reflex. I mean, part, and not everything about this is reflex exercise, but the kind of got what I got out of the whole thought process of reflex exercise is the opposite of what Dante just talked about. But notice that you can take it both ways. That means that there's a way to control what should be a reflex system because the limbic thing, the emotional thing, you don't necessarily, like, I can't say, hey, be happy. That's not, like, if that was the thing. You start singing that song, but. All of a sudden, psychiatry yeah. falls apart if it was that easy. Yeah, if only. Right. If, if you can just, like, stop being so stressed out. Stop it. Right. Then you're being stressed yeah. out about being stressed out, and that just yeah. yeah. amplifies the effect. You can't just effect. do that. It's just like telling time, someone to relax, and they don't. If we use, what, the somatic system, the body system, as leverage into the mind, all of a sudden your movement patterns retune your emotional patterns, retune your mental, because look, you gotta be able to hold on to something and I can't hold on to your soul. But I can open up your chest, I can stretch yeah. you out, I can teach you to move a certain way. So it sounds like the way we approach upper cross is really quote unquote multidisciplinary, right? Right. So we're, we're going to take care of those somatic dysfunctions in the clinic as we find them. Right, we should. But then Absolutely. we're also going to add on stretching and exercise. Right. Uh, protocols and programs that will work 
both in the office and outside of the mm -hmm. office. And it sounds like we're just trying to retrain our body. Right, overall. So if you Google it, anybody can Google these, right? Yep. So they'll tell you, stretch the tight muscles, strengthen the weak muscles. Sounds pretty logical. <laughs> it sounds logical and easy, but it yeah. may not be as easy as we But might. why are we seeing so many of, of these people in our offices? And the ones who are not coming into our offices, who are living with it all the time, there's so many out there, right? If it's that simple, so well, the mind I, I, trap I give my patients right. to kind of get into that mode. So I ask them how many reps, because a lot of them will say, hey, I do my exercise, I do this mm -hmm. and the other thing, why do I still have pain? So the question I offer them is, how many reps do you have doing whatever the move is? For me, it's almost always a Turkish getup. So yes, how many reps have you course. done of your Turkish getup? They go, I got my 10 reps in, good for you. How many reps did you get on the computer? And they're like, 5,672. I don't want to talk about it. And, but that's the thing though, you know what I mean? How many reps does it take of an exercise that you're only going to do for half an hour to override a lifestyle? If they're doing it for half an hour. See what, see what I mean? That, that becomes yeah. the hard part because I can give you the stretching exercise, the right. movement routine to start to control the problem. But ultimately, if we're going to undermine the problem at the root, even the exercise is insufficient because, hey, look, I can do get-ups for days, but if I live basically in front of my computer because of my job, I don't know how many get-ups it takes to undo, I don't know, software engineer. And, and it, I mean, that goes along with what we tell our musicians too, right? Yep. Um, dancers yep. too. Well, you're going to play, you play four or five hours a day Easily. in one position. You must do something to counteract that. And that's, that is great. And then I think uh, osteopathic manipulative treatments to restore symmetry and help with relaxation of the tight muscles and um, help with synergistic firing of these muscles and a lot of these things along with home exercise plan that is mindful of what they're doing outside of these exercises mm -hmm. and that's really core of the treatment plan for what we call upper cross phenomena now we rename this now boom oh we're totally gonna lay yeah deal with it <laughs> with that i call many things a phenomenon because i don't know the better word for it uh, yeah <laughs> well but then the thing is what we haven't really talked about is that there is something that really connects to what we just talked about with neuroplasticity mind body spirit the way we see every human being as makeup made up of this connection of mind body spirit right mm -hmm. there is that true effort that needs to be put in to to redo or undo or i hate the word fix but you know for unwind. yeah unwind <laughs> there's a reason i use the word train yeah retrain, you know retrain uh that are not firing correctly or, you know, abnormal or, or dysfunctional. But also there's other aspects of our lives that we have to change. Like earlier we were talking about how, you know what, if my patients hate doing these exercises that I give you, give, that I gave them, but then they go home and do any vigorous exercise of their liking every day, every other day. I'll be so happy with it and I'll guarantee you they'll come back in my office and say I feel so much better 
right? Surprise, surprise, surprise right? Surprise, surprise. You, you reprogram the brain and all of a sudden things work better. It's, it's and amazing. Then the thing Except is... Except bicep curls. Oh, yeah. Wow. If, if they end up doing bicep curls, I might just look at them disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the only, thing... Only a brief, only a brief period. There you go. It's just, I think that, uh, you know, in, in, in that case, you've seen this probably in your practice. I've seen it in my practice. These patients come back and they're so much better subjectively, but guess what? Their protrusion is so tight. Right. Right? Their scalings are so tight. Their pectoralis, still tight. <laughs> because what? I mean, the thing is, they're still well, They're working. still sitting at the computer. Right. But they're better. And, yeah, and, that's, and that's important. They're suffering less. They're, they're suffering, suffering less. less. They're, they're performing they're better. They're performing improved. better. So, you know, it's needless to say this is not straightforward. It's complex. But a lot of it is logical. A lot of it is easier said than done. <laughs> work together to get it done. And that's right. the beauty of what we do in the osteopathic world and in the functional medicine world. Yeah. that uh, we work with you until things improve and give mm -hmm. you tools. And, and the body is an amazing thing. We've talked about it repeatedly on this show, how the body has all of these wonderful systems built in, and sometimes they're not working right, so we just have to retrain them, bring them back in line and back, back online, and then everyone feels better. It's, right. like you said, it's not an easy fix, but it is a fix. And you know, Dr. Yang, thanks so much for coming on the show mm -hmm. today. That was an amazing, amazing discussion of upper cross syndrome. So now everyone who listens, you're all going to be thinking, do I have upper cross? And if you do, probably come in. Do. And, <laughs> you probably do. Yeah. You probably do if you're listening. Yeah. Uh, come in and see us. We'll work with you and, and, uh, and get, you, get you straightened out. But uh, thanks again for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. And uh, come in and we'll see us. We'll help you find the problem, fix the problem, and then we'll leave it alone. And join us next time. We're going to be talking about more hippity-dippity stuff. We're going to be going into yoga and all of its benefits. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Rollin' Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. 
This vlog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.